Hello, listeners. I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thank you for listening in. This Breathe Easy podcast is co-sponsored by the Critical Care Assembly and the Nursing Assembly. Our discussion today pertains to the growing involvement of advanced care nurse practitioners in the ICU. I'm joined today by Jenna Landsberger, who is faculty at Vanderbilt and an active researcher in the field. First, thank you, Jenna, for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, let's start by, um, for the benefit of the audience members who are unfamiliar with acute care nurse practitioner specialties, can you provide a brief overview of the education, training, and certification? Sure, Michael. Acute care nurse practitioners, or ACNPs, are master-prepared nurses who are trained to diagnose and treat medical problems under the supervision of a physician. We've all obtained a Bachelor of Science in Nursing, generally worked as a bedside nurse, and then obtained a Master of Science in Nursing, which is a two-year program. Michael, it's important to know that there are about 10 different subspecialties of nurse practitioners, such as neonatal, pediatric, family, adult, psychiatric, and these various specialties determine scope of practice. The ACMP curriculum prepares students to provide care to adults, specifically in hospitals and in clinics. And in general, other specialties of nurse practitioners are not legally able to practice in an ICU. In general, the ACMP curriculum is one year of didactic and one year of clinicals, which includes over 500 faculty-supervised clinical hours. And then following successful completion of this program, you're legally licensed through your state as a registered nurse as, and as an advanced practice nurse. The individual state that you live in determines practice laws for nurse practitioners, and these can vary widely. And then finally, you must take your boards to become credentialed as an ACNP. Regarding training, ACNPs require substantial on-the-job training, and this education is generally provided by attending physicians and more experienced nurse practitioners and is focused on unit-specific patient care. And if you're a new nurse practitioner, this takes about six months. Well, that sounds like quite a bit of training. Over the past decade, more and more ICUs have been relying on ACMPs to provide continuity of care in the ICU. Can you expand on what you think is driving this and share your thoughts about the growth of ACMPs in the ICU? Sure. Care continuity has been a buzzword in medicine since the early 2000s, and for good reasons. Care continuity is important for patient safety, patient satisfaction, and staff team building. ACMPs can provide continuity of care in many different practice settings, including the ICU. Regarding growth of ACMPs in the ICU, I think utilizations of NPs gained popularity for two main reasons. First, we all know there's a nationwide shortage of intensivist physicians. And despite an increasing demand for critical care services, the number of intensivists is constant or declining. Plus, there's a huge element of burnout among experienced intensivists. And then the second confounder is ACGME implemented tighter regulation on resident work hours, which created a void of qualified providers. So increasingly, ACMPs have filled this void. ACMPs filling this void provided a two-fold benefit. We filled this staffing void and we can provide continuity of care. And interestingly, the growth of ACMPs in the ICU has continued exponentially and has expanded beyond academic medical centers and into community hospital settings. Another driver for increase in ACMP use in the ICU is the push for 24-hour intensivist staffing. 
the LeapFrog group published safety standards calling for ICUs to be staffed by intensivists during the day and then for intensivists to be available via phone or physically present in the hospital to provide care for ICU patients. But we have found that physician assistants or nurse practitioners in the ICU is helpful as well. Nighttime staffing does not have to be done by a physician. And in the staffing model we use, the use of ACMPs in the ICU 24 hours a day, seven days a week, assures that we have continuous on-site coverage by a faculty member without burning out an intending physician. I want to get a little bit more into that staffing uh, model that you described. So in 2010, Vanderbilt Medical Center created continuous in-house ACMP teams to meet the demands of their growing ICU, as you've said. Can you tell us how Vanderbilt and other medical institutions are actually incorporating uh, ACMPs into their care team? There are many different practice models for incorporating ACMPs into the ICU. At Vanderbilt, we have six different specialty ICUs. And so, of course, we have six different practice models for ACMPs in the ICU. There are many effective ways to use NPs and PAs in the ICU. And I have friends that work anywhere from Washington State to Boston and any place in between. And I have found that there are some keys to successfully incorporating nurse practitioners in the ICU. I think no matter where you are, in order to have nurse practitioners be successful, you need to make sure your ICU utilizes them to their full scope of practice. When the team is organized so that ACMPs are practicing at their full scope, their benefits are clear. In our medical ICU, we have 34 beds, and we are a closed ICU. These 34 beds are covered by three separate teams. Two of the teams are comprised of house staff, a critical care fellow, and an attending physician. And one team is comprised of ACNPs, a critical care fellow, and an attending physician. For the ACNP team, we have one nurse practitioner there 24-7 with an overlap of two nurse practitioners during our busiest six-hour period. We care for a census of about eight patients. So to staff one ACMP 24-7 and care for a census of eight patients, it takes nine full-time nurse practitioners being hired to our team. The critical care fellow and attending physician are on call at night, but they are generally at home unless they're specifically called in to deal with a patient problem. I think this is a great practice model because it offloads the residents and enables the ACMP to more independently care for the patient. I couldn't agree more. I was curious as to how the patients get divided up. Are they divided up equally between nurse practitioner and residents, or do you have certain patients that preferentially go to one service over another? In generally, they are divided randomly. The critical care fellow is the triage officer for the entire 34-bed ICU. So the critical care fellow that is on call for the day receives all the incoming calls from the transfer center, from our emergency room, or from hospital patients that are already admitted to the floor. Then the critical care fellow triages them to one of the three teams. There are a lot of factors that go into how the critical care fellow triages the patient to a specific team. But in general, it's just sequential. So team one will receive a patient, then team two, then the nurse practitioner team, and this pattern repeats itself. 
they do have to consider the existing workload. So if team one has eight patients, team two has eight patients, and the nurse practitioner team has eight patients, but we're getting rid of four transfers or a couple discharges, then we might have more workload during the day or vice versa. If the, if the resident team is transferring or discharging a lot of patients, then those factors play into how the admission flow goes. Well, I think that policy seems very wise. It's a good way of making sure that both teams stay involved and there's no perception of inequality. I'd like to get to your study. You had a study called Outcomes of Nursing Practitioner Delivered Critical Care that was published last year in CHEST. Can you tell us why you implemented your study and briefly summarize the results? Yes. Last year, we published Outcomes of Nurse Practitioner Delivered Critical Care in CHEST to examine the long-term outcomes of patients cared for by ACMPs. No study had ever examined the longer-term outcomes of critically ill adults continuously cared for by ACMPs. And the way our unit is organized, we naturally had two groups to compare. We performed a prospective cohort study of all admissions to our ICU over a three-year study period. The primary endpoint was 90-day survival and was compared between patients cared for by the ACNP team and the resident teams. We also examined ICU and hospital mortality and ICU and hospital length of stay. We included just under 10,000 admissions in the three-year study period, and we found there was no difference in 90-day survival for patients cared for by ACMP or resident teams. Knowing there would be many skeptics, we performed many subgroup analyses, and we found this observation that care was similar was robust. There were similar outcomes for ACMP and resident team patients admitting both during the day and at night, on weekdays and weekends, across the most common admitting diagnoses and along the full spectrum of expected mortality. Also, after adjusting for potential confounders, patients cared for by the ACNP team were less likely to die in the ICU and had a shorter hospital length of stay. In-hospital mortality of patients cared for by the ACMP team was similar to nationally benchmarked UHC expected hospital mortality. That's such a good study, uh, and I think a very important study uh, in regards to the changing culture of uh, getting nurse practitioners in the ICU. Uh, I was curious, you had mentioned about uh, trying to adjust for different confounders, and it made me think of Mitch Levy's 2008 study that showed that critically ill patients actually did better if they were managed by non-intensivists, and one of the main criticisms with that was that perhaps it just wasn't accounting for every single uh, confounder. What are your thoughts about this? Do you think that because assignment wasn't truly blinded, that there was some potential for assigning patients differently, do you think that uh, the results of your study may represent confounding? Well, I want to emphasize that the primary goal of our study was to show that our results were similar. It's not my goal to show that we take better care of patients but that with proper training and good physician support and supervision, the patient outcomes can be similar. I don't think there's ever a way that we could measure for all patient confounders, and this was not a randomized study. But in a time where we do need more staffing in the ICU, I think our study showed that this is a great alternative staffing model. Very well said. Have you encountered any difficulties with patient or patient families or physician perceptions 
of intensive care being provided by nurses instead of physicians? Sure, Michael, but it's more uncommon than I'd expect in regard to patient and families. I'd say that probably 95% or so of my patient and family interactions are positive and they see me not as a nurse, that is their provider. Plus, each patient in our team is seen by a physician at least once a day, and I'm reassessing the patient every few hours or however often is needed. In rare cases, patients or family members ask to spend additional time with the doctor, and I oblige. I find this usually has nothing to do with my capability, but it is their personal or cultural bias. And then regarding physician perception, when our service was in its infancy, there were perceptions by other physicians, particularly on consulting teams, that the acute care nurse practitioner team was inferior to the house staff. However, I do not feel that this still exists. Well, I couldn't agree more. I was curious what your thoughts were about the letter to the editor about your study. Some physicians had asserted that acute care nurse practitioners cannot handle complex patients. I thought your response personally was excellent. Would you mind summarizing your thoughts on the matter and perhaps, you know, whether or not you are aware of any evidence base supporting or refuting the quality of work of ACMPs and patient outcomes in the ICU? I believe our study supports the quality of work that ACNPs can provide. Our results showed that a continuous ACMP service developed by careful ACMP selection, very thorough training, attending physician oversight, and hospital support can provide an alternative staffing model without detriment to short or long-term patient outcomes. I am not aware of any evidence refuting this. However, personal bias still exists. As you mentioned, following publication of our article, an editorial titled, Nurse Practitioners Cannot Handle Complex ICU Patients, was published. In this editorial, the authors state, complex cases cannot be handled safely by ACNPs, even with the presumed physician oversight. There is no evidence to support this opinion. So we replied by describing one of the many very complex cases that we care for on a daily basis. The example that we cited was of a 36-year-old woman who had been admitted with septic shock, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and multi-organ system failure from enterobacter meningitis. In the 24 hours after ICU admission, she was intubated, she was started on three vasopressors, as well as continuous renal replacement therapy. Over the next 20 days, she was weaned from vasopressors and renal replacement therapy. She was extubated and discharged. She then followed up in our Vanderbilt ICU recovery clinic, which is staffed by the same nurse practitioners who cared for her throughout her ICU hospital stay. I think this shows that ACMPs can provide excellent patient care, continuity of care, and can really hold a unit together which translates to good patient outcomes. I wholeheartedly agree. In my own experience, having worked with both resident-run ICUs and nurse practitioner-run ICUs, sometimes you get residents of varying interest in critical care and varying diligence and quality. It is so nice to have consistently good and reliable ACMPs, and I can at least say my experience has been that they can certainly handle extremely complex patients. And so, yeah, I definitely appreciated both that editorial for prompting uh, your response and your very well-worded response here. 
Some of the uh, nurse practitioners in my ICU have actually expressed an interest in uh, doing research. And as a successful academic published nurse practitioner, what advice do you have on how to develop a career as an academic ACNP? That's a great question. The best response I have is to have a mentor who is really interested in helping you. When I was hired to the medical ICU in 2009, I had been working at Vanderbilt's burn ICU, and I had a great career there. But they were starting this new nurse practitioner program in the medical ICU and specifically recruited me away from the burn center into the medical ICU. And Art Wheeler hired me, and we sat down in his office, and he said, I will help you build a career. I will make you a researcher. I will make you a great teacher. And I commit to doing this to you if you help me build this program. And we hired eight additional nurse practitioners to start this program, and he made that promise to all of us that this would not be a job where we're coming in and punching the clock from 7 to 7, taking care of patients, but that we were true faculty members who had responsibilities outside of patient care. And Art very firmly believed that if he invested in us, then we would invest back in him and the ICU and make it a better place. I think that's the best advice I can give is to really have someone help you. And beyond that, I would say you should advocate for non-clinical hours that research is a mandatory part of your job. So I generally work 32 clinical hours a week and have built-in time to do research. So if you have time and if you have a mentor, then you can do great research. Well, I think that's great advice. And, you know, you had uh, one of the greatest mentors out there. Art Wheeler was truly a visionary, and the critical care world has certainly felt his loss. I've always been very impressed with how much he's accomplished with uh, advocating for the role of ACNPs in the ICU. What recommendations do you have for nurse and physician teams or leadership at institutions who are trying to implement this type of care team? So, for example, a hospital that says, we want to start implementing something like this, we've never done it before. What sort of recommendations or advice might you have for them? I feel pretty strongly that I kind of know what it takes to make this model successful. Thoughtful implementation, extensive training, physician support, and leadership buy-in are key to successful implementation of an ACMP team. I cannot overemphasize this. My former boss and mentor, Art Wheeler, started our program, and he gave it deep roots. Before you start the program, you need to make sure the program has clear goals, direction, and leadership. If you're going to start an NP program in the ICU, please designate a physician to lead the ACMP team. Make sure the team is designed to meet the needs of the ICU and that the model is sustainable financially. And then you have to hire the right people and invest your time in training them. I feel like I need to say that again because it is so important. Invest your time in training them. When starting a program from scratch, hiring the right people and training them can take 6 to 12 months. And when our program started, we spent 32 clinical hours a week taking care of patients with physician oversight. And then the different critical care faculty provided us 8 hours of didactic education each week. So we went through lecture upon lecture, septic shock, respiratory failure, drug overdose, GI bleeds, et cetera. So in addition to supervised patient care, ACMPs also need these lectures, and they will also need procedural education. 
After completion of training and demonstration of competence, ACMPs can independently intubate, place lines, perform thoracentesis, paracentesis, bronchoscopy, etc. And in our medical ICU, all the ACMPs are formally trained in critical care ultrasound, and we often educate physicians on how to perform ultrasound. In addition to in-house training, you should know that there are now several national conferences that are specifically directed to ACMPs and PAs working in the ICU. So that's another option after you hire the right people to send them to these national conferences. And if you start a program successfully, then you can have great retention. Like I said, I started the MICU program at Vanderbilt back in 2009, and I'm still here eight years later, and we have great retention. And then I think it's important to know that physician support and collegial relationships are also key to a successful program. You need many physicians in the department to support the ACMP program. This helps grow and sustain the program and makes for a better work environment. And then finally, the program must be supported by administration. We have 100% buy-in from both the nursing and medicine administration. And that ensures that when tough choices must be made, our job is secure. I think we're out of time, so this is going to have to conclude our ATS Critical Care and Nursing Assembly podcast. This has been a very insightful discussion about nurse practitioners in the ICU. I'd like to thank our guest, Jana Landsberger, for joining me in a great discussion. Thank you, Jana. Thank you. This is Mike Lanspa for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you very much.